This is the Retirement Detective Podcast, where we dive into cases with Philip Mock, chartered financial analyst and certified financial planner professional, to solve common retirement and financial planning questions. Get insight into how to solve quandaries that appear on the path to and through retirement, ideas on how to approach savings and investing for retirement, and how to plan for retirement in a tax-efficient manner. Now, here's your host and lead retirement detective, Philip Mock. Welcome, everyone, to the 25th episode of the Retirement Detective Podcast. I didn't know when I started this podcast if I'd even make it past the first five or ten episodes, but here we are at episode 25. I have no intention of stopping anytime soon, and I'm looking forward to hitting 50 and 100 episodes very soon. I think we'll hit 50 episodes probably sometime around the end of 2020, and 100 episodes sometime around the end of 2024. So that seems like a long time from now, but I'm sure the time will go by very quickly. I encourage you to go to our website, www.retirementdetective.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, you can submit episode ideas, and you can ask me questions. And I'm really looking forward to putting more content out there, and I'm really appreciative of all the people that are listening to the podcast, and I I just hope you enjoy it. Um, Any questions, thoughts, feedback you have is always welcome because I'm always striving to improve. In today's episode, we're going to analyze how to save money on trading costs. Now, this is a somewhat complicated topic because trading costs are are complicated when you consider all the different types of investments out there and the way that they're traded. But I want to give you some insight into some of the things that professionals consider when evaluating trading costs. Now, depending on what's in your portfolio, there really may not be much trading cost mitigation to do, but we're still going to analyze the different ways that you can try to save money with your trading costs. When you purchase an investment for your portfolio, there are a number of different costs to consider. There are the explicit costs, and then there are implicit costs and there may be ongoing costs depending on what you purchase. One of the only ways that you can control the outcome of your investment portfolio is through expense reduction. You can't control or predict the market, cannot control or predict the movements of individual stocks or funds or ETFs. You cannot control the economy You cannot control the economies and markets in other countries. One of the few things that you can control in your investment portfolio are the costs associated with it. Now, costs can vary, and you may have an investment manager that you use, like a a financial advisor. That is a cost. Costs may also include, if you use mutual funds or ETFs, those funds have 
expenses to pay for the people that manage those funds, that's a cost. When you buy and sell securities, sometimes there's a charge to execute that transaction, a transaction charge, and that's a cost. There are other costs that are more implicit that we'll talk about, but those are some of the most common explicit costs. Costs are on its own not necessarily a bad thing, but they should be considered and all else equal mitigated. And what I mean by that is that consider two cars. One car is the the plain Jane brand of that particular sedan. And then let's say there's a luxury brand division of that car company that effectively produces the same car with different badging, different bells and whistles, different colors, etc. And obviously the luxury edition of that car costs quite a bit more. Now, if you were to just evaluate on cost, you might say that only the plain Jane brand version of the car would be the one that would ever make sense because the luxury brand car costs more. But to someone that really appreciated the prestige and all the bells and whistles that go with the luxury brand, they might be always willing to pay for that. The point being is that cost is not necessarily indicative of outcomes. I'm just saying that it is one of the few things that you can control. So when you choose something that has a high cost or a low cost, I just think that you should be aware of it. In all else equal, you would want to choose lower costs. The point is that you should know what you're paying in terms of expenses, but within the explicit costs of the fund manager expenses and the financial advisor expenses and then the trading costs, today we're really going to focus on just the trading costs. And the trading costs are those associated with making the trade itself, the, the order to buy or the order to sell and any costs that comes with that action. In other words, absent an action to trade, there would be no cost. So the explicit trading costs can be a, a ticket charge, a, a charge from the brokerage to make the trade. In some cases, it could also be a commission that goes to an advisor or a broker. And then there's a host of implicit costs that we'll try to dissect. First, let's evaluate a couple of things that will help narrow this discussion. Open-ended mutual funds are things we've talked about in several different episodes. This is a, an investment vehicle where you're buying a pool of assets managed by a professional portfolio manager, and it is priced at the end of every day at its net asset value. So they take all of the assets inside the fund, they add them all up and divide by the number of shares, and that's the net asset value per share. That is the price for that security. And everyone that buys it on that particular day gets that price. And everyone that sells it on that particular day gets that price. So when you're talking about open-ended mutual funds, there really are not a ton of transaction costs related to its price, but there are sometimes fees to purchase it from the brokerage. So if you use a brokerage, they may charge you a transaction fee to buy or sell a mutual fund. That's something for you to investigate. Now, 
if you can buy fund A at one place and the same fund somewhere else cheaper, you would want to evaluate all the factors, but it may make sense for you to try to purchase it at a place where you can get a lower price if you're truly buying the same thing. Of course, like I said, there may be other factors to consider. Bond pricing in, in buying individual fixed income instruments is maybe something we'll tackle in a future episode, but that's a very different process than what most people consider when you're looking at market pricing. Bond pricing is market pricing, but it just is different. So today we're really going to focus on stocks and ETFs whose prices change throughout the day on public markets. So we're not talking about private market trades, public market trades, trades that you can go on to your online discount brokerage and click buy or sell yourself. That's pretty much what we're talking about today. There are lots of different ways to purchase and sell instruments, but there are two primary order types. There are market orders and limit orders, and they do have an impact on price and cost. So a market order is basically you telling the trader or the brokerage, I care less about price. I care more about time and I want this filled right now. So the emphasis on this is speed and the disadvantage is that you have price uncertainty. So you don't know what price it will be executed at. You can look at the market price at that moment when you push the button, but you don't exactly know what it will be when the order is actually received. And these days the order is probably received pretty quickly, nearly instantaneously, or maybe within a matter of a few seconds. But nonetheless, you don't truly know what the price will be when you push the button. The opposite of this is a limit order where you say, I care more about price. I care less about time. So in this case, let's use a, a, a buy order, for instance, a buy limit order, the execution price must be lower than or equal to the limit price. So let's say we're looking at stock A, stock A currently trades at $50. You could enter a limit order that says, I want to buy this stock if it hits $45. When you're buying with a limit order, you always set your limit price lower than the market price because you wouldn't want to do it the other way because buying a price higher than the market price is actually against you. It, it's, it's a disadvantage, whereas buying lower than the market price would be an advantage. And it's the opposite for a sell order. With a sell order, the execution price must be higher than or equal to the limit price. You always want to buy at a lowest price as possible and sell at as high of a price as possible. With a limit order, you generally set a specific amount of time that you want the order to remain active and then it might expire or you could leave it out there until you decide to cancel it. Therefore, you don't have any certainty as to when the trade will execute. You only know the price at which it will execute. Those are the two major types of orders. Market orders give timing certainty, but price uncertainty. Limit orders give price certainty, but timing uncertainty. When you're looking at the price of a security, you may see on your screen for a stock or an ETF, a, a current price and then below it, maybe 
two prices separated by a hyphen in parentheses, and that is called the bid-ask spread. The bid price is the price that a dealer will pay for a particular security, and the ask price is the price at which the dealer will sell a security. The difference between the two is the bid-ask spread, and you can think of it as the compensation that the dealer is going to make in that transaction. So let's use an example. Let's say a security has a bid price of $12.50 and an ask price of $12.56. That means that when people are selling it to the dealer, they're going to sell it to the dealer for $12.50. That's what the dealer's willing to purchase it from you for. And then the dealer will turn around and sell it to somebody else for $12.56. And you, if you're the buyer on that side, you're buying it from the dealer. The dealer's selling it at 11, or excuse me, $12.56. Therefore, on that particular trade, there'd be a six cents profit for the dealer. Controlling bid-ask spread is a really important part of handling your pricing. It's a lot easier to determine, you know, if your fund expenses are X and your portfolio is Y in terms of size, then X times Y is the approximate expense for that particular investment in a given year. But the bid-ask spread is really tricky because while you have a pretty good idea of what it is before you order it, if you're looking for it, you don't actually know the spread until the order executes because the markets move all the time. You could look at your price that you received on the transaction and discover that it was actually outside the bid-ask range. And therefore, the market moved somewhere mid-click on your mouse, so to speak. So when you're working with buying or selling stocks and ETFs, this is one of the prices you have to consider. You also have to consider that your broker or custodian may charge you a fee to make that transaction. Typically for stocks and ETFs, it's a per share fee. So it might be six cents per share or three cents per share or something like that. Mutual funds tend to be on a per order basis. So a buy order is $20 or a sell order is $20 and the amount doesn't matter. But with stocks and ETFs, it's usually based on the amount, and it's usually in a per share form. So let's take, for example, that same spread we were just talking about, $12.50 to $12.56. This is our, our bid-ask spread that we're seeing on our screen. And let's say we're going to buy it. And remember, the bid-ask spread is from the perspective of the dealer. So the bid price is the price that the dealer will buy at and that you have to sell at. And the ask price or the higher one is the price at which the dealer will sell and therefore at which you will buy. So let's say you're going to buy one share of this particular security and the bid ask spread is that $12.50 to $12.56 the midpoint is typically what is put out there on the market pricing. So you look up the price of the stock and often they're quoting the mid quote. Now, 
you'd want to read, read the fine print on whatever you're looking at, but that's typically what they're quoting. And then you also have to consider your per share price. So if this brokerage, for instance, had a six cents per share price, then you have total trading costs of your six cents per share purchase or your six cents per share transaction charge plus your transaction cost as a result of where it is in the spread. From the mid quote to the ask price is three cents. So compared to what was quoted, this trade most likely costs you an additional three cents that basically goes to dealer profit. And so the total cost of this one share is six cents per share plus three from the spread is nine total cents. The more narrow that bid ask spread is, the more liquid the market for that security is. So for really liquid securities, you may see a bid ask difference of only a cent or maybe two cents. And for really illiquid securities, you may see a bid ask spread that might be several dollars apart, which for many shares might be quite expensive. The bid ask spread is one of the implicit costs that exists. It's real, it's there, but it's hard for most people to quantify because you don't actually know what it was until after the order is taken and executed. There's also the contemplation that for really illiquid securities, your trade may actually move the market price. And, and that can also add to the cost. So let's say you're trying to buy a stock that is very thinly traded and, and not there's not a lot of volume for that stock. There's not many people that buy and sell this stock. If you begin making really large purchase orders, the dealer may see all this activity and start raising the price because they see all these orders and they know that they're the only dealer offering that security. And so they can raise the price knowing that you're most likely going to take it. Think of it like a lemonade stand. As long as you have people continuing to show up to your lemonade stand, you might as well keep raising the price of a cup of lemonade because until people stop showing up, why not? If, if people were showing up all the time, why would you ever lower the cost? That wouldn't make any sense. And if you have so many people that you might run out of lemonade, it might actually be pretty prudent to raise the cost so that you don't run out of lemonade several hours before your lemonade stand is supposed to close. Dealers work very similarly. They'll have a stock in their inventory and maybe they really want to spread out the time over which they get rid of it. They can raise the price or if they really want to get rid of it in a hurry, they can lower the price. They use the market to set the price, but when you purchase a security, you are effectively taking the dealer's price that they set. And for really liquid security, there probably isn't a whole lot of difference between the two, but there could be. So in our example, let's say that you are going to buy a thousand shares of a stock that doesn't trade very much, and you put in your first order, you see, let's say you of those thousand shares that you're gonna put in, um, it, let's say a thousand shares, and it's $100 per share when you start and you buy you want to buy 10 blocks of 100 shares. You put in the first order and you get 105. You put in the next order and it's 112. You put in the next order and it's 120. And you put in the next order and it's higher and so on. Well, let's say at this particular brokerage, 
there's no cost to buy and sell stocks. So let's say at this particular brokerage, you had no transaction charge. Some people might look at that scenario and say that that trade was free. And I would argue that it was not because as the price went up, you're paying more and more and more for the same security. That is the dealer effectively adjusting their price based on the fact that you're a motivated buyer and you're wanting to get rid of this or you're wanting to purchase this stock and they're wanting to get rid of it at as best price possible. When you work with a dealer or a brokerage or a custodian, remember your goals are opposite. You want to buy at as low of a price as possible and they want to sell it to you at as high of a price as possible and vice versa when you're selling. In this case, that could have been mitigated a couple of different ways. If time was not an issue, you could have spread your order out over maybe several days in much lower share amounts such that a dealer might not really notice the activity in that stock or, or notice what you were doing. Moving the market with your purchases or sales is never good. And if you're working with an advisor, they actually have a duty to the markets to make sure that that doesn't happen. But it's, it's not a good thing for you because it, it basically hurts your profit in that security. Another way you could have avoided that is with limit orders. If you had said, time is no issue for me, but I want this stock at $100 a share, then maybe a little of it would fill today and maybe a little more tomorrow. But as long as you put in a limit order of $100, you're never going to pay worse than that. The downside is that if it's really thinly traded, the order may never fill. You may never find a buyer at that price to, to take it from you if you put out that order at that price. Now, most people that listen to this probably are dealing in more liquid securities that are really often traded thousands of shares per day. And what I'm describing really is not an issue, but in some cases it can be. Now, everything I've talked about today applies pretty equally to individual stocks, ETFs, and closed-in funds. They all trade at bid-ask uh, ranges, and there may be a ticket charge. So if you are concerned about transaction prices. There's a couple of things you can do to mitigate those. Number one, if you're buying a pretty common index fund, for instance, and let's say your brokerage has a 10 cent per share charge. If you can find a mutual fund that tracks the same index that maybe the cost of that purchase is less or or maybe that brokerage doesn't charge for mutual fund orders, then you may find that it would be better to buy the mutual fund compared to the stock. So let's say that for that particular fund, and as you'll recall, it was 10 cents per share to, to make a purchase. Let's say you wanna buy $50,000 worth of that fund, and let's say it currently trades for $25 per share. So $50,000 divided by $25 per share means you're going to buy 2,000 shares. And at $0.10 cents per share, that means that trade's going to cost you $200. If there was a mutual fund that tracked the same index, the fees, the management fees were the same, and you could buy that for less than $200, then it might make sense for you to buy the mutual fund. Let's take another example. And this time you only want to buy 10 shares. You're going to buy 10 shares of something that costs $25 each. 
then that's going to cost you $1. But maybe this brokerage costs $30 to buy mutual funds. So in this case, it might be better to buy the ETF because the ETF might only cost you a dollar or two because you're buying so few shares. But the mutual fund may cost you quite a bit more if their purchase or sell price is that much higher. The point of all of this is that I see a lot of things out there on social media, etc., about the cost of advisors and investment managers and the cost of mutual funds and costs of all these different things, but not many people are talking about this cost. And the transaction charges, the bid-ask spread, uh, the way that market movement can really hurt you, and these are important things to consider when you're making trades. I think for a lot of people, it's just ignored. And you can go back and determine with, you know, you have to have the data to do it, and with some effort, you can go back and exactly figure out what your total costs were in terms of transaction charges and in terms of um, the bid-ask spread and the difference and the market movements. It's, it's a little challenging, but you can do it. But I just think most people, not only do they not attempt to do that, they just ignore it altogether because it's complicated. It's not easy to understand. Now, another transaction charge we haven't talked about is commissions. So some mutual funds are inclusive of a commission charge that's either a front-end load or a back-end load that's a transaction charge that might go to your, your broker that you work with. Now, not all brokers and advisors accept commissions, but let's assume you're working with one that does. Some mutual funds, when you purchase that mutual fund, has something called a front-end load that is a, a charge at the time of purchase. A back-end load is a charge at the time of sale. Let's say we're talking about Fund A, and Fund A has a 5% front-end load. That means at the time of purchase, absent some um, waiver or something like that, when you purchase that fund, 5% of your principal that you invested goes right out the door to your broker. That's the commission. A back-end load is after... There may be no commission at the time of purchase, but later if you sell the fund, there might be some percentage charge that goes to your broker at the time of sale. And typically it's lower. Typically a front end load could be anywhere up to five and a half, five and three quarter percent. A back end load is typically more like one, two or three percent, but this is another charge to consider. Now, often when your broker, um, as you buy something with a charge like this, there's not an additional transaction charge that goes to the custodian. It's just this fee, but it's another fee to be aware of. And keep in mind, if this is a mutual fund, then there's, there's no price movement during the day. So at least you're going to get the same price as everybody else that's buying that fund that day or selling that fund that day, but it's another transaction charge to be aware of. All right. Well, that ended up being a little bit longer discussion than what I had originally anticipated, but I hope you found it interesting and helpful. To summarize, there are explicit costs when you're trading. These would include the transaction fees, any commissions that are due, taxes eventually are, you know, considered an explicit cost. But then there are implicit costs that come from 
the bid ask spread, market movements, etc. There are two types of orders. There are market orders where your timing is certain, but your price is uncertain. And there are limit orders where your timing is uncertain, but your price is certain. I hope that you take all of this information and use it to evaluate how you've been trading your own portfolio or to evaluate how your advisor or broker trades your portfolio to, to do a self-assessment and say, is there anything I can be doing now that I'm armed with this information to perhaps lower my trading costs? Are there comparable securities to what I've been buying and selling lately that maybe I could get in a mutual fund form at lower cost? Or maybe the other way around, if you've been buying and selling mutual funds that have transaction charges, see if there's an equivalent ETF or, or closed-end fund that um, maybe has a per-share charge that might actually be less than what you've been paying in purchase and sale charges. If you have a broker that charges commissions, investigate what those commissions are and evaluate if that's something you're still comfortable paying. You can't control the market, you can't control your return, but you can control how much you pay for it. That's all for today's episode. I appreciate listening to the 25th episode of the Retirement Detective Podcast. Have a good week. This recording strictly is for informational, educational, and entertainment purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of the Retirement Detective Podcast. The Retirement Detective Podcast is not affiliated with any guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. The Retirement Detective Podcast does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The Retirement Detective Podcast shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decisions. This podcast is not a solicitation to purchase or sell securities or a solicitation for advisory services. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, accounting, or other professional services, and nothing in this podcast should be relied upon as rendering legal, financial, accounting, or other professional services. Philip Mock is not a detective or law enforcement officer, and any reference to such is for entertainment purposes only.